As Gen AI reshapes industries, understanding and leveraging its capabilities is no longer an option, it's a necessity. And that's exactly why at Hatchworks, we developed our Gen AI Innovation Workshop. In this workshop, we immerse you into a full day of learning, hands-on ideation, and building. We hit foundational concepts and show you how they relate to your domain. Then we develop actual use cases for your business and your industry. And we even build a custom GPT based on the use cases we define. Check out the link in the show notes or visit hatchworks.com to get started today. Welcome to Built Right, a podcast by Hatchworks where we help you learn to build the right digital product the right way. In each episode, we'll deconstruct the layers of successful product development, break down popular trends, and offer real advice to help make sure your product is built right. We may not have all the answers, but we've built a lot of digital products across a lot of industries, and we've seen a thing or two. Let's get into it. Welcome everyone to our first edition of Built Right Live. If you're not familiar with the Built Right podcast, we focus on helping you build the right digital solution the right way. Check it out on all the major podcast platforms. We drop a new episode every other week. Please drop in comments as we go along. We'll be checking the comments and that may you know tailor our conversation a bit as we go. Um, but today we got a really good one for y'all. We got special guest Jason Schlachter, founder of AI Empowerment Group and host of the We Wonder podcast. So he's got some some podcast chops as well. Uh, but Jason, give us an introduction so folks have a little context of your background, your history, and what AI Empowerment Group exists to do. Awesome. Thank you, Matt, for the introduction. And I'm glad to be here. This is exciting. Um, yeah. So my background is in AI primarily. I've spent about the last 22, 23 years in the AI industry. I went to school for a master's in AI in 2001, back when there were basically no jobs in AI. And that led me down a path where I started off as a researcher, um, doing a lot of work for DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, um, Army Research Lab, Naval Research Lab, NASA, uh, intelligence organizations, all kinds of stuff that you could imagine would use AI before mainstream businesses were, you know, going crazy for it. Um, and at some point I left that world, uh, moved into a strategy role, um, led AI strategy at Stanley Black and Decker for their digital accelerator. And then from there went over to Elevance Health, which um, owns Anthem and Blue Cross Blue Shield. And there I focused on leading um, the R&D portfolio and strategy, uh, mostly around AI, uh, and then uh, as a product lead for their clinical AI work. Um, and so since leaving Elevance at um, AI Empowerment Group, you know, our focus is really on solving the people part of AI. That's the way I like to sum it up really nicely, because what I've seen, and I think a lot of research supports this, is most efforts to deploy AI do not return the business value that people expect it to return. Um, about 90% of AI initiatives fail to deliver on the business value that's promised. Um, I've seen many organizations where it's 100%. Um, it's almost... Mm -hmm a technical reason. It's almost always something at the organizational level. So there was a maybe um, a misunderstanding of what was expected for the project. Um, there wasn't sort of a deeper, nice, deep, deep enough vetting of the use case. Uh, there's maybe misunderstandings by the sales and marketing team. So they weren't able to sell it. Um, the project was sort of canceled at the last minute because of legal concerns, data concerns, contract concerns. Um, so 
AI Empowerment Group really addresses all those non-technical um, challenges uh, by upskilling the workforce, getting them re AI ready so they can make the right decisions, um, by holding workshops to help figure out which use cases are worth pursuing, building out the strategies to support that, um, and much more. But that's that's a highlight. Nice. Yeah, awesome, Jason. So what, everybody listening, I wasn't lying when we said it. We had an AI expert. He's been in this game for a while. The, the hype around generative AI, he's he's been at it much longer than that. But in those who don't know Hatchworks, uh, you know, we, um, we're your trusted digital acceleration partner delivering unique solutions to achieve your desired outcomes faster and really on a mission to leverage AI and automation paired with the affordability and scale of Nearshore to accelerate your outcomes. Uh, but Jason, I'm pumped about this conversation today. We're kind of giving people a, a sneak peek into our generative AI playbook, but hitting on one of the most foundational concepts, which is how you actually identify and then vet some of these use cases. But let's, let's start at the foundation. In order to start defining use cases, let's ground people in you know, what generative AI is and what it isn't um, to kind of set the stage there. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about generative AI. Um, generative AI is a subset of the field of AI. Um, and the field of AI has been around for a long time, like thousands of years. And I know this is kind of sounding crazy when I say it like that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna back it up for a minute. Um, so even going back to like the biblical texts of the Old Testament, um, there are like parts that talk about um, AI. They talk about um, people creating autonomous machines and systems that can do tasks uh, that can um, operate autonomously to take away the the menial work that people don't want to do. And uh, they talk about these these systems as like, you know, created things uh, that just don't have souls, don't have consciousness. And I think philosophically, they were already addressing a lot of the use cases that we could even think about today. So thinking about the use cases for AI, for auto automation, for robotics, it's been happening for thousands of years, which um, I kind of felt was shocking when I figured that out. Um, and, and so moving forward to today, you know, the, the modern field of AI emerged in the 1950s. And in the 60s and 70s, it was research. In the 80s and 90s, it was commercialized. It was already a multi-billion dollar industry in the 80s and 90s. I think a lot of people don't fully realize that. Um, and then, of course, in the last 10 years or so, it's really gone you know, completely exponential. I mean, there's been big data, deep learning, generative AI, adversarial networks. Um, it's just a full breadth of everything. And I think most recently, you know, we like to see things through our human eye, like lens, we anthropomorphize everything. So for the first time, like in a long time, it's not some system in some enterprise that's making some pricing decision. It's this thing you can talk to and it talks back to you. And that's kind of scary and exciting and interesting. Um, and I think that's what's driving a lot of the hype uh, and it's generating things. So for a long time, we've often said that creativity when and creativity is hard to define, but like creating things is the human quality that machines will never have. And now they're doing it. And so there's questions like, what is art? What does it mean to compose something? Like who can win an Emmy? Who can win a Grammy? Um, and so this is like really what's, what's causing the hype. So, so generative AI is artificial intelligence that generates content. Um, and the kind of content it can generate in today's world is uh, text, like like documents, words, phrases, um, code, because code is text. So it's just a, a certain type of text. Um, it can generate images, um, videos, 3D content, like for games. It can generate music. You guys might've seen there was a Drake song that came out that was supposedly like pretty popular. 
actually sounded kind of good. Um, Matt, did I've you? I've not seen that yet. Was it was it produced? They did some generative AI to produce it. Well, Drake didn't produce it. Somebody else produced it, but it was Drake singing it. Oh, yeah. Drake yeah. found out about it after it started becoming popular. And it was like his voice mm-hmm. and his style to his music. Like, and, and somebody just basically trained a model in his voice, his style, and dumped it out there. And so, um, you know, there's just these questions of what does it all mean? Um, it can generate speech and audio in that same use case. Um, other side of it is like very like hard sciences. So uh, generative AI can generate like biochemical sequences, like protein molecules. Um, so very, very open um, in terms of what's possible. Um, it is probability based. It is based on, on deep learning architectures, which means that it's, it's probabilistic. Um, and I won't go into the technical side into you know, exactly how it works, but it's not thinking and reasoning in like a symbolic causal way. It doesn't understand that like, if it rains today, the ground will be wet in, in like, a, like a, you know, a very like um, expressive way, the way we understand that. It just sort of has like some numerical representations that, that are able to connect those concepts together. And so it might respond intelligently, but, but it doesn't actually sort of think and understand in the way that we typically would expect. Um, it also will reflect any kind of bias or flaws that are in the training data. So if you had healthcare training data and in that healthcare training data, certain members of the population are not getting the care they need for like societal reasons, not clinical reasons. And then you trained an AI system to make decisions about like what care should they get when they should care, when should they get that care for like the best outcome that bias would pull forward into the model. Um, there's ways to mitigate the bias and, but, but generally this is a challenge. If you have bias in the data, you have to, you know, account for it the best you can and the bias will show up in the end. And so with generative models, it's the same. Um, if we write, you know, with um, prejudice or bias or hate speech, like it shows up in the generative models as well. Um, it also uh, pulls us into like the post content scarcity world. Like up until this moment, we basically lived in a world where like there was a limited amount of content, you know, at some point it was, you know, hundreds of books in the world and millions of books in the world. Now there, there's no number of books in the world. There's an infinite number of books in the world that can be generated on demand. Um, and so that really changes the whole world in which we operate. Um, yeah. So no, that, that's awesome context setting there, but what was really cool is the, the history dating back to biblical times. I was not aware of that. that that's super interesting. But you, you like the Drake example you mentioned, like you can think of whole business models changing here. Uh, that's a big piece of this. You also right. think of the accuracy of the data. And we're going to get into that in a minute when you're talking about vetting some of the, the viability of these use cases. But I think one big piece of it is with a hype cycle, you saw this in the dot-com boom, a lot of this, there's a lot of people with a hammer in search of a nail, right? Yeah. The hammer being generative AI. Yeah. Like, Let me go find a nail. Let me go find something I can do with this. Yep. And back to basics, it's important to flip that and focus on the outcomes and relative use cases first. But maybe take us through like how how to think through some of the like higher level business outcomes to start to like bucketize where you can focus some of these generative AI use cases. Yeah, absolutely. And and maybe I can start to um, Matt with a, a bit of sort of like the the why we're going through this and what it yes. means to find these use cases. And I'll segue into, into some of those. Um, okay, so, you know, 
in this talk, finding the use cases, validating the use cases, I, I want to I want to talk about a couple like preamble type things. Um, so first, if you're out there with customers, if you're out there trying to solve problems, trying to figure out how to make you know your 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 product better, trying to reduce your claims processing costs, like you are the expert and you are the person that knows the the opportunities and the needs uh, that that you could address. Um, and so in that sense, like you're the perfect person to find the use cases for AI and generative AI. And it really um, is on, on, on your shoulders to like elevate those opportunities and bring in the rest of the stakeholders. And so I think to do that, it's really critical that you understand at a high level, at a non-technical level, like what is AI? What can it do? What's hype? What's not hype? What are the opportunities and risks in, in pursuing this approach? How would I sort of like frame out and scope and describe this use case in a way that I could bring in the other partners? To be a part of it, um, and so there is this this ability for you to do that with you know a fairly basic understanding of you know how to think about these things, and that's kind of our goal here today to get that that basic understanding. Um, and then, if you think about finding the use cases, making the plans, like you know, there's a there's a need to make a plan, there's a need to find the use cases, but you know, we don't plan to have a plan; we plan to get good at planning. And the reason why is because you know, your plan doesn't survive first contact with the customer or because of where I spent most of my career, first contact with the enemy. Um, and yeah, so what you need is. <laughs> right. I, I had to adapt as I shifted from the, the defense world to the you know, right. consumer world. I had to change a lot of my phrases and sayings. And this is one of them. Um, first contact with the enemy to first contact with the, the customer market. And, I, and we live in this dynamic world. So in finding these use cases, like, it's not that there's going to be the perfect use case. Like, the goal here is to get good at finding use cases, to get fast at validating them um, and, and trying them and learning. Because the faster you can do that, the, the better you'll be able to keep up with this um, sort of exponential curve that's ahead of us. Um, and then the last thing I want to say is we are here to talk about generative AI because it is exciting and there's lots of things you can do. But for most businesses, most of the use cases for AI are not going to be generative AI. Like most of the business value is going to come from the stuff that is not taking up all the headlines right now in the media, mm -hmm. right? It's going to be pricing your products dynamically or better. It's going to be automating some of your, you know, internal customer service or claims processing. Uh, it's going to be, you know, facial recognition on your, on your, you know, I don't know, like your product that, that makes something a little bit easier for your, your consumer to, to log in. So like, even though we're here talking about generative AI and it's very exciting, I just want to put that in perspective because you don't want to be looking with this hammer for all the nails in your organization. Uh, this is just like one tool and it's a very, very powerful tool. And that's what we're talking about it. Um, yeah, so and I like the way I like the way you framed it. It's like building the muscle. It, it, that's the essence, building the muscle of how do you go through this process to get to the end outcome that you want to want to get to. So that's a, a foundational piece of what we're trying to Dude, think of this as like a workout, y'all. This is this is the the intro. We're we're the trainer. This is the beginning of the workout. Uh, but yeah, so like, and I think there's different areas you can find opportunity, right? There's internal areas. There's external areas. It can be revenue generating. Like, so there's different focuses where you can start to think through where do you want to focus some of these efforts. But any um, thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know. There's a great quote by Douglas Adams, which says that uh, technology, um, 
is, uh, God, I'm forgetting the exact verbatim. Oh, technology is a word for something that doesn't work yet. And I think it's a, it's a great phrase because if we're talking about it, AI, it means we're not talking about a solution, right? It's a technology. It's not a solution. Um, and so we want to pivot to what solutions could be, right? So optimizing your internal company operations could be improving a product or service for a customer. Could be optimizing um, like your defenses, your cyber, um, your, it could be, um, you know, improving your documentation. So there's all these different kind of use cases that are either optimizing your business or innovating your business, helping your customer in some specific way. Um, and I think if you look at it at like the industry level, we can, we can dive deep into some more like industry level type stuff. Um, yep. you know, there's a lot of specific use cases at the industry level. So like on the financial side, um, these kind of models can be used for customer segmentation. Um, you could custom, you could segment out customers by needs and interests, targeted market campaigns. Um, you can do risk assessment, fraud detection in healthcare. You can do drug discovery, personalized medicine, medical imaging, on the manufacturing side, there's product design, there's um, manufacturing planning and quality control. There's um, on the technology side, there's uh, you know more efficient coding, software development and processes, cybersecurity, automating data science. I'm just running, but no one's, you don't, you guys want to remember all these. I'm just trying to give you like the shotgun view of yeah. like, oh my God, this is a lot because this is only a small bit of it. There's uh, something you said just leading up to this, we chatted about, and there's this sense where you, you know, people can stay at the surface level of what AI, generative AI can do. But where you get the gold is where you focus into a specific domain discipline, where your area of expertise is, that's where you find something unique. So it is important to think about within your industry, within your business, within, you know, the, the problems that your customers have. Yeah. That's a key element to where you're thinking how you can apply these things. And another, I heard someone talking the other day. When you're thinking about, you know, what you want to roll out and use case and all that, take the word AI out of it. And does it yeah. still have value? Like, yeah. does it, does it pass yeah. that smell test? Yeah. Right. Now, like you referenced like the, the Google and Apple events recently, Apple didn't mention AI really at all, but it was foundationally in just about everything. Yeah. That's a really stark, did. that's a stark example of that. Um, Google talked about AI a lot. Apple didn't talk about AI at all. Um, and I think, Google positions themselves to be a company that delivers AI as a tool, right? Like they're selling AI um, as a solution. Um, Apple doesn't really try to sell you AI. Apple tries to sell you a good experience, a seamless experience. So there's kind of not a strong need to talk about AI specifically. They might talk about like intelligent typing or smart notifications or something like that. And that makes a lot more sense. Um, Matt, I think maybe if you want, we could um, jump into some of these sort of like questions that help. Yeah. So, so just to set this up, this is one of my favorite areas. So many folks, I think, get stuck early on thinking in an in incremental nature versus kind of a stepwise trans transformational nature. So, uh, Jason, take us through these questions. Great place to start if you're, you know, talking with folks in your business, trying to facilitate and exercise around this. So take us through some of these questions and how to, how to think through them. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So these questions are, are very simple. They don't even say anything about AI specifically, but they're going to help you get to the core of the use cases where you could deploy generative AI. Um, and in a bit, we'll talk about that and how you kind of validate and assess those opportunities. Um, all right. So this is a question that I, I heard from uh, some buddies of mine at um, ProLego. It's an AI consulting company. Um, when we were talking about use cases, 
um, if I had an unlimited number of, of interns, um, how would I deploy them to maximize business value? So that's a question to ask yourself. Like you have an unlimited set of interns, you're in charge of them all. Where do you put them? I think like some people kind of might be like, I don't really know. Other people might be like, oh my God, yes. Like they need to go do this one thing for me because that will save my life, right? Like uh, they need to go and sit in our call center because that's where our customers suffer the worst. Or they need to go and review all these claims because we're six months behind in processing claims. Um, if you can do that, then you can talk, you can find a friction point or an opportunity that would benefit your company or yourself. Um, and there's some different variations of this question that I would ask too. Um, mm. Matt and I were going over these earlier and kind of just spinning up different versions that, that hit at sort of like different slices. So another one would be like, in addition to unlimited interns, what if you had unlimited staff? So you manage a team of infinite. <laughs> um, you go from team of however many you have now, five, 10, 50 people to unlimited people. What would you have them do for you? Yeah. Another way you framed it too, I think you said, what if I had a small country <laughs> working towards a problem I had, just to put it like in, in context, but what that's doing- That is starts to sound kind of ominous. It. <laughs> yeah, that, it does. You're right. I mean, a lot of there- <laughs> yeah, you know, there's all kinds of dystopian stuff we could get into as well. Yeah. But it's like, it's that reframing though, because it's not so much about the people element of the resources. And that's the beauty of starting to trigger some of these questions. When you are de dealing with technology like AI, it takes some of those constraints out of the equation or it kind of flips the script a bit, right? So that's kind of the idea behind some of these. Yeah. And so I'm going to continue this, Matt, with a few additional yeah, questions. Yeah, Gone from interns, so not super skilled, but maybe very eager and capable to staff, kind of know what they're doing. Um, next one I want to ask is, what if you had unlimited experts? You could bring experts from all fields to your team to help you. What would you have them do? So that takes it up a level now, because one of the things that generative AI can do is it can empower people to do things that they're not experts in, but they can do with generative AI. So I'm not an expert painter. But I love art. I have a lot of ideas. I've seen art. If I can describe verbally um, my perfect vision for a painting, then I can use generative AI to create that painting. And, and it's going to look really good. It's going to look like a professional work of art if I do it right. Um, so I've sort of become like an expert in the sense that I, I'm now an artist. There's probably a lot of philosophical arguments about like, did I create it really? And, you know, can I view myself as an artist? But, but practically speaking, you know, it will be difficult for people to differentiate between that AI created painting and someone creating a painting. Mm -hmm. um, so if you had experts, how would you use them? Um, okay, and we're going to keep going. So we got some good questions popping in the chat. Not that we have to hit them right now, but there's some keep keep them coming, y'all. We'll, we'll try to weave some of these in in a minute. But yeah, keep okay. hit, keep hitting the questions. Okay, okay, here we go. Um, all right, so this is this is one of my favorite ones. So up until now, we've been focused a little bit on that internal optimization of my business, right? So how can you optimize your business internally? Like, yeah, you could have used those interns to follow your customers around and give them an amazing experience, but like, it's been a lot of like internal locus of, of you. Yeah. And now we're going to shift it to external. So if you could give every one of your customers a personalized team of as many people as needed, five people, 10 people, 100 people, and their sole job was to give your customer an amazing experience. What would that team be doing for your customer? I think that is yeah. one of the most like 
powerful things to think about. That's powerful. Yeah. And it, that is taking it from incremental to potentially business model changing, disruptive use cases. And that's the idea of this exercise, right? It's starting to get into more of that blue ocean, uh, starting to just generate the ideas, get them out there with a reframing. And I mean, hell, throw some of them in chat GPT and <laughs> give them some context and ask them there. You can, you can have them play a role in your, uh, in oh your facilitated God. exercise and as well. And so this is not to imply that generative AI currently, you know, can fill the issues. It's not, to, we're not meaning to imply that, you know, if you've created this, this imaginary team that you've given it to your customer and it's doing everything to make your customer have an amazing experience that then generative AI can, can meet those needs. Mm. Most likely it can't. The point is though, is that you're starting to get to the core of thinking with a different framing of like, I could write unlimited articles on behalf of my customer. I could book, you know, I could book everything they need for the entire week, you know, on their behalf. Um, I could go clothes shopping for them. Like there's a lot of, you know, things that you could do with an AI model that can generate things and also, you know, summarize and explain things and, and represent, you know, design and stuff like that. So that's kind of the gist of this. And then there's one more question, the kind of fear mongering question here. Um, yeah. And this is, if your customer, if you're, if you're sorry, your competitors, if your competitors could do the same, your competitors had unlimited staff, they probably would use that stock to make great customer experiences as well. But I'm going to frame it in an adversarial way. If they use that staff to put you out of business, what right. are they going to do? Right? So now you have to think about this because most of your competitors won't do that, but the best of your competitors will be doing that. They'll be thinking through these potential use cases. And when the technology is ready or when it makes sense from a value perspective to apply the technology in that way, they'll be ready and waiting to do that. Yeah, and this is the one, it, it, when we were talking about these, it hits a different area of your brain. When you frame it from like, oh shit, the, the competitor is trying to put me out of business. What are they mm -hmm. gonna do? And it, it does, it gets you to kind of think about it from a different lens in a lot of ways. Uh, so those are, those are kind of the framing questions in essence. So this is all about idea generation, reframing how you think about things. The last point you made was interesting too. Even if it's not perfect right now, you can still begin testing and playing around with this because things are progressing at a rather, you know, alarming, crazy, whatever uh, adjective you want to add rate right now. So what may not be possible today could be possible in three months, six months, a year, five years, right? So it's core that you start thinking about this now and how it will impact your business, your business model, how you operate, right? Yeah, because it's not, it's not the technology that fails to deliver value in almost all cases. It's, yeah. the, it's the, the system point of view. It's the organizational failure. So, you know, you, your organization, you know, and your team should be able to, to frame these opportunities in the right way and, and, and be data and AI driven in their, in their thinking process so they can act fast because when that new capability emerges and we saw it when, when, um, you know, chat GPT four hit the market, uh, there were some companies that like overnight had applications. Um, some of them were bogus and kind of borderline fraud, but, uh, you know, those have kind of fallen away. And now we see like Adobe deploying, you know, image creation models inside of their Adobe platform so that you can like completely generate a new background for your foreground, or you can, you know, erase an object and then ask it to generate a new object and it will 
be able to do that in, in the application. So those are starting to become more, more, uh, more mainstream for sure. Yeah, that's when we're playing around with it. Hatchworks right now. Uh, I think it's Firefly is the name of the Adobe product, similar to like a Mid Journey or something like that. But it's within the Adobe ecosystem. And I think this is where we'll start to transition into some of, you know, you have ideas, you have uh, you know a list of ideas you've generated, but how do you begin to test vet the viability of we should do these over these? You know, that, that's the one of the most important things is how do you start to prioritize uh, some of these use cases. And there's a bit of a, you know, call it a rubric or analysis you you take it through. So Jason, start to take us down this path of how you begin to weight and prioritize some of these ideas. Absolutely. Um, and Matt, let's stick, let's throw up our um our our use case that we're gonna use to to illustrate. Yeah, let's do it. Right. Um, okay. So yeah, so yeah, you, you set it up. You got the you got the real story. And I'd say, too, we got a couple. There's one related to the stock market. There's one related to uh, um, chat with a customer, customer interactions. We may play around with a couple of those later. But, yeah, let's hit the the main one. Jason's taking a big trip in about a week or so. So, Jason, set up the use case for us. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and Matt, let's let's make sure we get those questions in, too. Um, I, so, the use case I'm, I'm most focused on right now is travel. So, I'm, I'm heading out to Japan in a bit with the family and trying to book our, our travels. And, you know, I, I kind of want to be on the edge of, you know, the uh, sort of like touristy kind of stuff. I don't want to be like deep in it, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that means I'm looking for like experiences that are just like a little bit off the beaten track. Um, and so booking hotels, looking for national parks, trains, buses, do they, you know, can, it says that the hotel room sleeps four, but I only see two beds. Like, are they charging extra for kids? Like all this kind of stuff. And it's a huge amount of time to kind of really dig into it if you want to make it right. Um, and I don't really want to hand it off to a travel agent because I, I like the idea of being in the details. I like the idea of having the controls. Um, but with Expedia or Priceline or TripAdvisor, um, what I'm having to do is I'm having to like break down the larger itinerary in my own mind, research all these different places, of which most of them which I'm not going to go. Some of them I don't really understand. And then look at for individual things. So can I find a train from point A to point B and what does that mean and how much does it cost and how where we put our luggage and can I find a hotel in this city and like, I don't really know which district to stay in and all this kind of stuff. So, so if I had the ability to give myself a team of, of staff that were going to work on my behalf as a generative AI might, I would want to say to the generative AI, I'd like to take a travel. I'd like to take a trip to Japan with the family. We want to be outdoors hiking. We want to we want to get our hands dirty doing archaeological digs. We want to take lots of photos. We want to be at local cultural events. Um, we want to be at the Yon Festival in Kyoto on these dates. And Super Mario World super uh, super important to my kids and to yeah. me. Um, so we want to go to that as well. Um, give me some itineraries and and sort of like figure out all the connection points and show me like cost structures and explain to me sort of which ones are better than the others and why. And from that, it's like, I, it's if I had my own executive team working on this for me, and then I could look at it and I could say, well, this looks cool, but I don't want to go there. Or like, I could even query it like, hey, why are you putting me in this city? Like, I didn't ask for that. And it could even sort of respond with like, well, we found that like people like you who have gone to Japan and visited the city, you know, really enjoyed it for these reasons. And it fits comfortably, you know, with your schedule here and there. Like, it would just be like a very, 
easy conversation. And from like a, like an, let's say like a trip advisor perspective, like it's all AI driven. There's no customer service agents. It scales. There's no time. So that's to me, like a, a, a use case that very clearly is going to become dominated by generative AI. Um, yeah. There's one, there's one catch and we'll kind of get mm-hmm. into this moment with the, uh, things to weigh. It needs to be right. Do not want to be stranded with, with two kids at a bus station with mm-hmm. a hotel that only sleeps two people, even though it, it booked it as four. Um, and that's where generative AI is not so great. Um, and so we'll talk about that. Yeah. What are the stakes? And first of all, I'm jealous of the trip. That's awesome. You're getting to do this, but we can put ourselves in like the seat of Expedia or a company looking to disrupt Expedia. Uh, how should they be thinking about this? And, and frankly, I mean, Expedia yeah. should be very wary because this, this is the type of uh, you know, emerging technology that literally could upend an entire business model. And just as an aside, we, we've got an episode coming out later with Andy Silvestri, our uh, elites up our design practice. You know, there's potential for this shift from kind of a, uh, you know, imperative to a declarative approach, a point and click kind of approach to like declarative where I'm, you know, talking and interacting with the yeah. interface. So it changes how user interfaces are designed. So be, be able to look out for that. It'll be coming out in a few weeks. Uh, but Jason, start to take us through yeah, you know, you just kind of set up the context. What are the different dimensions that you can start to uh, weigh a use case to, right. to determine how viable it is? That's right. Okay, so we'll start with business value, but we'll keep it really short because business value, you know, is something that you know is is well studied, and so you want to be able to assess the business value. Um, to assess the business value with generative AI, uh, you may want to rapidly prototype. You may want to do sort of, you know. Uh, you know, Wizard of Oz kind of things where, you know, maybe you give um, a customer a chatbot and you and you label it so that it's very ethical and transparent as you're talking to a, a generative AI bot, and it's it's very expressive. It can it can look through all the documentation, um, the all the all the manuals. It's not just dumping technical information to you, but it can can reformat it and answer your questions. But at the same time, you have this whole thing that it's you know AI bot driven. What you could really be doing on the back end is you could be having some of your expert customer service people, you know, quickly typing stuff out. And so you haven't really implemented anything technologically, but you've started to assess the viability of a customer accepting that they're going to engage with an AI and understanding how they engage with an AI. If they if they structure their queries differently, if they if they um, scope their their requests differently. So that's an example of a good business value where you could start to get to it. Um, next, and this is a really big one, is fluency versus accuracy. So um, mm. for these generative models, fluency means generating content. And, and that's what they do. They generate content really, really well. Um, accuracy means that the information is factual. And so if you asked a generative AI model, a text-based generative AI model, to help me write a short story about, and you explain what you wanted to write, it could dump a story to you. And it's mm. probably going to read really well. It's probably going to be great for creators that need help structuring their content or want to sort of like add some details to their content. Um, it just really speeds up that kind of workflow. In that case, um, things like hallucinations, which is a term for when generative AI models um, say things that aren't true. There's a lot of technical reasons why that happens, but they do that. Then in that case, it's okay because like fantasy, creativity, you know, abstract thoughts, like those are all interesting aspects of like a short story. Um, but 
if you have an agent that's meant to give you medical advice and you're asking it, you know, do you go to the hospital? Like what's going on with me? You really want it to be accurate. And it's not as important that it generates creative content <laughs> or that it yeah. has. Um, and this is a new kind of dimension, I feel like, with, you know, AI and generative AI. The importance of this one moves very high up the list of considerations where it wasn't as nascent as a concept, I think, in the past. You mentioned business value. That's still critical, always going to be there. Yeah. This one's interesting because, you know, it, it literally thinks it can go rogue. It can hallucinate, like you mentioned. And what is the the risk or the outcome of if something goes wrong, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you have to you have to think about your use case. Is it a use case that demands fluency? In which case it's uh, something that we can, you know, you can address, uh, you know, more easily with the models. Um, and if it's accuracy, there's there's ways to mitigate this. So uh, if you do demand accuracy, um, you're able to, you know, train models. You're on your own. You're able to tune some of the existing models. So there's there's like foundational models emerging for generative AI. These are like, um, you know, OpenAI's uh, ChatGPT4, um, but also, um, you know, Google has Bard. Um, mm-hmm. Eta has, uh, I think, Llama. So like a lot of these companies are, are, are building their own models. These are foundational models. They have very large representations of language and semantics. And then they layer on top of that this ability to, to um, be prompted and respond appropriately. So these are models that you could use off the shelf for some of your business use cases. Mm-hmm. And if fluency is your goal, those are probably great fits. Um, but if you have like a, a need for accuracy, you may need to tune them on your own data. And so this is where, you know, you start to, to ask yourself, do I have enough data to do that? Um, so it wouldn't be impossible to generate a model that answers medical questions. It's a great use case for generative AI if it is highly accurate and probably highly regulated. Yeah. Maybe even reviewed by a clinician, you know, in certain, in certain or many use cases. Um, or if it reaches a state of, you know, getting into the unknown, unknown territory, can the model be uh, geared in a sense to where it's not spitting out a random response, but it is saying, I don't know. You know, there's that element of it as well, which, you know, how do you start to actually monitor that? That may be a bigger, totally yeah. different problem, right? Yeah, there's not a lot of self-reflection is a challenge right now for these models. They're, mm, they're yeah. they know everything, even when they don't, because <laughs> um, what's in going their on? mind? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, they've been trained on a certain set of world data, and they have sort of a partial understanding of that data, yeah. and, and they look pretty convincing when they talk about what they know. Uh, but when they're asked to talk about something they don't know, they don't say they don't necessarily like, you know, say I, I can't talk about that. They they try to answer it in the context of what they do now. And because they have like partial understandings of what they do now, there's not like a, an explicit, like expressive representation of these concepts in some kind of, you know, logical reasoning, causal kind of way. It's all very probabilistic. You get very weird emergent phenomenon because yeah. you can find weird edge case paths through the, the probabilities of these models. Um, so fluency and accuracy is, is a cornerstone of how you should think about your use cases. Um, the other really big one is um, low risk and high risk. So, you know, we talked about this just a moment ago, but like, what's a low and high risk? Like Expedia sending me to a foreign country with my family and telling me to go stand somewhere in a corner 
because there's going to be a bus and there isn't, it's kind of high risk, right? But me, you know, jumping onto like T-Mobile's website and asking a question in natural language and getting back like a, like a personalized explanation um, is pretty low risk, especially, and this is interesting. So you can do retrieval augmented training on these models where in order to like in order to suppress errors and to build confidence for the user you can you can force it to only say things that it can back up with a document it's retrieved so in uh, the okay it could like pull up some kind of like knowledge base article that exists in in T-Mobile's you know you know data set and it could say like this is the thing i found but i'm not going to make you read it here's like the two sentences that that directly answer your question mm -hmm. But if you need to dig deeper, like this is the document that I use to kind of generate this answer. Um, and, and this so is taking it a step further than just like, let's just, you know, get the the uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT API and just integrate, right? Now you're starting to weave in some of your own company's data uh, information to enhance the experience, the model, all of that. So that's kind of up-leveling it a bit versus just, you know, slapping AI on your, your product service or process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then that's a fundamental question too. Like, you know, there's a lot of use cases you can unlock with off the shelf stuff, but there's a lot you can do to tune these models. And so when you tune these models, it's a question, do you have the data? Because if you're tuning, let's talk about if you're tuning them. So if you're tuning a model, why would you do it? You might do it because you need more accuracy in the kind of use case we explained. Um, and in that case, you need to ask yourself, do I have the data? to tune it. And so what do you need to tune it? Well, you need your own documents that represent the, the knowledge sets and the way of speaking about the things you care about. So in T-Mobile's case, it could be like their, their knowledge bases, their tech technical documentation. Um, you also need, you may need um, prompts and answers. So one of the ways these models get built is a very labor intensive um, step where, where people literally write out a prompt and then write out an answer. And then they show the model both and they use those to train the model as to like, this is what a good answer to this prompt should be. And, and some of these bigger companies like Google and Microsoft, they have like thousands, if not tens of thousands of people employed full-time, like writing prompts and answers. It's a very labor intensive part of the process. So that might be something you do to tune a model. The other reason you would tune a model, if not for accuracy might be performance. So Maybe you don't need a huge model. Like maybe you can run with a really small model that takes less compute. You can run it on a, a locally on a device or it just costs less, um, but you need to tune it because you're, you're building an auto mechanic helper generative AI system that, uh, that helps your auto mechanic, you know, rather than reading car manuals um, for cars that he hasn't worked on for a while, he just asks the question and gets the immediate answer with reference back to the model, the manual pages or something like that. Like, mm. In those cases, it could be small, it could run on device. Um, so those are, those are some considerations there. Um, and then the other, the other piece here is what's defensible and non-defensible. So, you know, is it important for you that the model that you're using and the use case you're building is, is defensible from a business perspective? So yeah. let's get back to the travel example. Like, would it be defensible if trip, like TripAdvisor built that capability i'm going to pause i'm going to, I'll, I'll throw you the question <laughs> yeah and, and folks in the audience too go on to answer you know it's interesting if it's simply you know if you could do the same thing referencing chat gpt 
or some large language model that's open to the public? I'd say no, it changes the whole business model and defensibility of their business. Now, if it's leveraging to your point, data that an Expedia or a TripAdvisor has that they can supplement into the model, then I think it does begin to have an element of defensibility. Uh, but what's, what's, what's your take? I'm curious. Yeah, it would have to leverage custom data from, from TripAdvisor. Mm -hmm. They're not going to get yeah. anything that's capable of doing that kind of use case off the bat. They're going to have to spend a lot of time and a lot of money um, leveraging their own data to tune those kind of models. And even then, I think it's really going to struggle um, with being accurate because um, mm -hmm. there's so many connection points, right? Transportation hubs, hotels, sites. But if you think about what they have, they, they sort of can trace member trajectories through like cities and tourist areas and restaurants. So I, I do think there's a lot to it that they probably could do. Um, I think it's partly defensible on the model yeah. basis. It's partly defensible because Expedia might be able to do the same. Priceline might be able to do the same. Um, you know, Booking.com might be able to do the same. I would argue that there's nuances that TripAdvisor has that, ca that they capture, like extensive photos from users. Uh, and sort of very bi like multimodal, like hotels, cars, um, you know, hiking, restaurants, er everything is, is so across the board. But, but I, I think like, even if it's not fully defensible, they still need to do it to be competitive yeah. in their industry space. So, so it's somewhere between like differentiated and, and, and highly defensible to, to like the competitors might be able to do the same, but maybe not quite in the same way. Um, but I, I think ultimately, um, what's interesting is like non-defensible doesn't make it bad either. Like things can be very high value, but non-defensible. Mm -hmm. So in this case of TripAdvisor, like it might be that the model is non-defensible. Like it might be that they can build this model, but like so can every other travel service. So mm -hmm. then there's sort of like other levels of defensibility, right? Like, like use cases and business models were defensible before AI came along. <laughs> So yeah. like, what other ways is it defensible? Like it could be that, that their brand alone is, is helping to make it defensible. Um, mm -hmm. Like I don't necessarily want a startup, an AI startup, even if they're well-funded, sending me and my family out to Japan for a while, I, I might not trust it. I'd much rather go with a trip advisor. It might be defensible in that um, they have, you know, partnerships and integrations in a way that, this actually works, right? Because the rubber has to meet the road still, like if they're going to book these itineraries. Um, so there may be other ways to make it defensible that isn't the model. So I think when you think about these use cases from business perspective, a defensible model is great if you can do it, but you're not going to get a defensible model without spending a lot of money and having a lot of yeah. data. So it may not be critical. I think it deals with, is it connected to your inherent value prop where, you know, the customer-facing customer side of the business, the business model itself, then this defensibility question becomes really important. But you mentioned brand. Brand actually is a differentiating thing. Uh, now, I'd say most folks, you know, it's it's the level of apples and the big ones where that's where you see the, the brand defensibility truly shining through. Uh, but that's a critical piece of this. You know, I've, I've seen... There's like websites that track how many AI startups are happening, being created like every day. And, you know, there's some where they're literally just putting a skin on top of a uh, foundational model. 
and there's no inherent defensibility to it. Somebody could have spun it up over the weekend. And mm -hmm. it's like, how do you kind of weave through uh, that? You know, in, in essence, is there something, is there substance behind it that makes you unique, yeah. right? I mean, that's an interesting example because those companies were sort of serving a market need at some, in some ways. Like in the very early days, the average non-technical person probably didn't know what open AI was, didn't mm -hmm. know they had a website, didn't know they could go to the website and subscribe to their model, just saw it in the news. And then they get a friendly cartoonish bot popping up on their, you know, their their iPhone ads, you know, yeah. saying here for access to the model. And it's like, you know, that that was that was a marketing niche that OpenAI was neglecting. I think they're yeah. they're picking up on that now. But well, a great example is that the, the chat gpt app they didn't have an app for a little while and there were competitors that created an app just leveraging chat gpt yeah and they were able to get some amount of yeah. you know probably actually crazy scale but then chat gpt open ai came out with their app and you probably just completely killed their whole well, business sure. model so that's like the whole defensibility piece how easily can a competitor in and just you know take it over exactly okay so there's two more things i want to touch on here yeah one of them is like whether it's internal or external facing, like mm -hmm. this kind of relates to risk, but it's not directly related to risk. So if you think about internal versus external, like, you know, if you're using it to create, and this is really where, where these generative models have the most value to create content, um, where fluency is, is the highest need and, and risk is low. So this internal facing use case of like, you know, help me compose emails to my colleagues faster, or help mm -hmm. me create marketing content that I can post online faster, or like generate blog posts for me that I can just tweak and, and, and send out, right? Or like, you know, summarize to me this, this document that I received from one of my partners, um, or like um, explain to me, you know, the, this chain of emails, like those kind of things can really boost productivity. They're fairly low risk. There's a human in the loop. Human in the loop is, is maybe the magic word here. If there's a human in the loop and it's just proposing information or helping to accelerate something, low risk, and those are often internal facing. Um, but when you're customer facing, you know there's there's higher risk. So that's another thing you want to consider too. Um, and then part of that is is doing uh, the AI ethics component. So in all of this, you know there's a need to consider the implications of the ethical implications of using AI models even in your own business, but especially if they're affecting customers. Um, you know, at Elevance, you know, we're, we were building AI models for healthcare um, and we were um, impacting people's ability to get care with those models. Yeah. Uh, our intent was to improve their health outcomes and to make things better, but, you know, things can go wrong. And even when they go right, you know, there's always risks that you have to assess. And so we would hold these, these ethics workshops. And the idea here is to, to dive deep into what it means to build this. And so I just, I'll spend a moment on that, Matt. Um, yeah. Instead of time. But I, I think it, it, this, this happens like really early on. It, it's not like something you do kind of at the end of your use case pitch when you've got your funding and you just need to move forward. Mm -hmm. It's really like early on in the process of like the viability of the idea and the business value. And so there's a, there's ethic workshops you can do where you can work with a team of stakeholders and you kind of start off really small, you know, low, low overhead, an hour or two, get the basics. And as you grow your, your business case and your, your, your plans and your, your funding, then that's when you start to lay in kind of more and more layers of this. And this is actually something that, that we do for our customers. We help them 
to, mm-hmm. to work through these kind of ethics workshops where you, you want a third party that has experience running these and understands how things go wrong to, to run this internally. And so you look at your users, you look at your stakeholders, identify all the stakeholders. Um, you try to understand, you know, their, the, the values and the interests um, that the users and stakeholders will have, uh, what kind of tensions might arise, um, like how are you going to test your assumptions? You think about the impact you could have, um, changes in behavior that might emerge. Like a great example mm. for me is like cars. Like Atlanta, where we live, was built after the invention of the car, primarily because you know the original Atlanta city was um, burned down and they rebuilt it really after cars came to be. And at the time, the um, the mayor of Atlanta said, "I I dream of building a city um, that is a car first city." And it's like, that seems like an anathema today for us, but mm-hmm. that, that was the AI of the time. They wanted to build an AI first city, a car first city, right? Yeah. And now Atlanta is like really difficult to walk in and traffic is bad, congestion's bad. And we're slowly peeling back the layers of that a hundred years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an example of like changes in behavior. If there was an ethical review committee for, you know, a car first city, like maybe some of those things would have come up. Um, so there's also things like the group interactions that emerge. Um, so how it is affect groups. Um, there's questions around data and privacy, explainability. Um, so if a model is is impacting your life, like you kind of should be able to understand why it's making those decisions. We don't want to take um, sort of the the distributed bias and distributed failures of our our current sort of like business ventures and centralize them in a way that nobody can question and understand them. Um, there's questions around um, sort of like, do you have a human in the loop? How do you monitor performance? How do you mitigate things? Um, you know, how do you get feedback? And so all these kind of things are discussion points, like what is fairness? What does it mean to be fair in this use case? Um, so this is part of the validation cycle, but you just you start light an hour or two on the first pass. And by the time you're, you're funding like a big use case and a big program, like it should be very rigorous. There should be processes in place, accountable stakeholders and all that stuff. No, that's awesome. And, and great example of something that can be facilitated uh, with AI Empowerment Group and, and Hatchworks there. So we get about five minutes. I'm wondering, Jason, we could jump into some of these questions and topics in the chat if you're up for it, unless there's something else you want to cover. It's great. Yeah. Um, is, there's Jacob had one. Does anyone use AI for scheduling appointments and you know i don't specifically know of a tool i'm sure there's several folks trying to achieve this but this is like a a perfect example of a use case that you could disrupt a calendly or you know products that exist out there um you know how could that impact that workflow of i need to schedule appointments plan out my day i don't want to be the person having to you know reach out to somebody and say hey does this time work does that time work uh jason that was kind of an interesting one any thoughts on that I mean, yeah, I think there there are use cases like Calendly um, that that do that today, and I think there's there's other AI startups out there that that do something similar. Um, but I, I guess I would I would I would challenge the 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 notion of like what it is that what is the real task that that you want done or that I want done. Like, it's not strictly that like I want to schedule a meeting with Matt, and so I want Calendly to go figure that out for me. Like that's sort of still that like that like process level where I have to get it done. I would love to just have like a, a more robust agent or where I said like, Hey, I want to talk to these 10 people this week, go figure it out. 
And then Matt gets an email from Calendly saying, hey, Matt, Jason has identified you as somebody he'd like to speak with this week. Like, what is your availability? Mm. Um, And what you just did there is you took the question from earlier. Like if I had a team or a staff that could go and do this, how would they solve the problem versus me having to be like the main point of failure or bottleneck in the process? That's a great example of how to kind of reframe how you think about a use case. Uh, I like uh, Chris is creating movie scripts about Batman's early days, which is kind of, yeah, it's funny, but like Mm. it does change how that whole industry works potentially from a creator perspective and, you know, all of that. Right. We are. uh, So for people who are not like deep into, uh, you know, stable diffusion or or Dolly, there are uh, models out there right now, generative AI models creating uh, movies. Um, and writing the scripts for those movies. And so it's, it's emergent. Like I, I believe like in the next year, we're going to see like TV shows where the script has been written. The, yeah. the actual animations have been completely created by the AI. Uh, they may not be successful. I don't know, but uh, it's happening. But this is like, this is a, one of those big transformational uh, disruptive type of things. You think back in the day from like music going digital, same kind yeah. of thing. And there's going to yeah. be the movies, the studios trying to fight this, you know, change of like AI and generative AI playing a role. Right. But it has the the feeling of something similar that's happened not too far in the past. Right? Like, what if it's like, make make me a commercial that's going to cause people to hire, you know, AI empowerment group to to help them with AI strategy, you know, create music for it. I'd like some kind of like amazing techie kind of, you know, humanistic background and and write the script and then use my voice to make, to create it. And, you know, because it can speak like me because it's trained on my voice, like it will just speak for me. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. And Klaus brings up an an interesting one. How can businesses leverage the potential uh, of utilizing ChatGPT to enhance customer interactions, streamline various business processes while ensuring data privacy and compliance, particularly when it involves sending data via the API back to OpenAI Cloud? I think this is kind of an inherent like risk type of uh, aspect, right? This is a good one. Yeah. So Klaus, you mentioned you're with a German company and and the EU is um, passing um, measures to to require that any use of of generative AI be um, approved by committee uh, and be licensed, I believe. Um, And I think we're going to continue to see pushes for that. Uh, I don't necessarily think that we should be regulating generative AI or AI AI at that level um, in the broad sense. I think there's specific use cases that should be regulated, just like, um, you know, we regulate food with the FDA or drugs. I mean, certainly in certain domains and where there's a certain need for precision, it should be regulated. But I think for a lot of these startups with low risk, they should be able to get out there and do it. But, but in Europe, you're probably going to be faced with that that challenge. One way to, to mitigate what you're asking about is not to send it to OpenAI. Uh, run your own models, run them in your own cloud, host it in your building, um, push it to the end user, run it on their client machine. Um, and so in doing so, you're not necessarily sending their data to OpenAI. Um, there are open source models that are that are emergent in generative AI, um, and some of them are pretty mature. Um, Stable Diffusion is a great example. It's, you know, first class generative AI model that's open source. Uh, there's a lot of large language models and um, chat GBT type capabilities um, on the open source side. I'm a firm believer that the open source models 
will overtake the closed source yeah. models given time. Um, so yeah, it, you may not. There's even like a, well, there's a leaked document, I think from Google, I, I believe it was real, but they were kind of cautioning it this exact thing internally that, Hey, the open, the, and it's funny, they call themselves open AI. It's not really open per se, but you look at like Meta's kind of taking that strategy and there's other kind of foundational open source models out there, but yeah. they have the potential to overtake uh, things that are being developed internally, right? Yeah, Meta is a great example. So like, you know, OpenAI originally founded with, you know, Elon Musk and and others to, to open source these AI models so they wouldn't be closed source. Then sort of strong-armed, overtaken by Microsoft. Now yeah. Microsoft owns it, they, they make them closed sourced. Um, Meta has, and, and Zuckerberg has surprisingly shown up to be like the big open source creator of these models. And I think from a business strategy, it makes sense. Like, like Google's playing to win. Microsoft's playing to win. They want to they be the winners in this generative AI race. Um, I don't think Meta wants to do that or necessarily needs to do that. They're playing to not lose. If, if they yeah. raise the water for everybody, then everybody, everybody is okay and nobody loses. And I think that's yeah. Meta's play. And, and that's a good strategy against these two giants that are dumping all their money into it. Um, yeah, so there's a network effects element there too, right? If they're at the foundation of it, it you know, it kind of right, raises their, their business. I mean, it happened with stability, you know, stable diffusion, like uh, mm -hmm. there's thousands and thousands of, of versions of stable diffusion being spun up because it's open source and, you know, Dolly has its, its trajectory. Yeah. We are at time. We, you know, we could go a little bit longer. I just to kind of close it out though. I'd love to, uh, last comment there, you know, he's heard that, uh, these tools are an expansion to your imagination. They totally agree. One of my favorite uses of chat GPT is telling it to graphically describe any concept, great foundation for any type of media creation, but it's an interesting yeah. concept. It's like that co-pilot. And yeah, it's yeah. like a whole nother topic, but it's a neat. Yeah. Um, yep. Matt, there's okay, one. Well, yeah, we, we can, we can keep going. Let me do just kind of the, the call out and then we can stick on for another couple of minutes. But yeah, so like, like we mentioned earlier, Hatchworks and uh, AI Empowerment Group, we are partnering together. So like these type of custom workshops is the exact type of thing we can take your organization through, you know, uh, Jason, you mentioned kind of the ethics based workshop, but you know, this is the part where having an expert is critically important and so you know, hit up Jason or I, uh, and we can kind of help you help get that facilitated, but any other closing thoughts? And then maybe we can jump to a few other chat items. Um, yeah, Matt, totally agree. I mean, I, I love, I love the ideation process, the creative problem solving piece. And I love hearing about the kind of problems that are, that are real and concrete. And, um, you know, those kind of opportunities would be a lot of fun and, uh, productive for, for both of our organizations. Uh, so hopefully we'll hear from some of you. Um, I would love to pick up this one question from Monica Lopera, um, mm -hmm. which is the biggest fear for some people is that AI can replace some jobs or even professionals. How do you balance the pros and cons that AI brings to the world? So a great question. We're not going to answer it in the last moment here, but I, I think it's a great question just to surface because there is immense responsibility. Um, this is really the dawning of, of, of the, you know, uh, an age in which how we work and how we live and how wealth gets distributed and who has what is going to, is going to dramatically change. And there's a lot of hype out there, you know, generative AI is not, you know, everything that it's hyped up to be. And, and, and it's going to take a long time for a lot of these things to happen. But the reality is 
that we, we under, we over predict the short term change, but we under predict the long term change. And so this is a, a great question to service. And I think we just have to really be deliberate in the ethics of all this and um, try to build the world that we want to make, you know, and not, not the world that we can Right? Um, they're just tools. I'd say too, it's, you know, do you have kind of the uh, opportunistic mindset or the negative or positive? I'm forgetting the, the correct terminology here, but think about like, you know, 20 years ago, majority, a large portion of jobs that exist today did not exist previously. So a lot of times transformational disruptive things like this create new opportunities we don't even know exist yet. So I think this is like one of those things uh, that has the potential as well, even though it may be replacing some jobs, I think it's going to create a whole host of new ones in the process. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of what it's going to do is not replace jobs, but replace tasks. So like, yeah, if you like yeah. a, a medical claims reviewer, like I'm just taking a wild stab in the dark here. You might not love reviewing medical claims. Um, it mm -hmm. might be because <laughs> it well, and you have some training that yeah. makes it appropriate for it, or, or it's easier than being out on the ER floor all night. Um, but you may not love all aspects of medical claims processing. And so this is where I think AI can remove some of the, the burdensome tasks that you don't enjoy so that you can focus on the stuff you do enjoy. So what if you could focus on like the really interesting, like clinical challenges or like the really like puzzling situations and not sort of the mundane minutia of like comparing numbers or checking dates or, you know, understanding, you know, the timelines and stuff like that. So I think I think for a lot of people, for most people, it's gonna it's gonna remove the mundane, more automatable tasks, but but not their jobs. There certainly will be people whose jobs are lost. Um, but like you said, it's it's always changing. Yeah, it's like back to jobs to be done. You know, communication is the job that's existed for a very long time, from talking to physical mail to uh, email to you know. Slack and keep going. The job remained the same. It's just how you did it changed, right? Uh, and just the last one, just because Chris is hitting on it, you know, how is it going to impact the stock market? Anything being done to regulate that? I'd say, I don't know. I think there's a lot of stuff already being done today, leveraging AI yeah. in terms of stock trading. And that that's kind of already prevalent in a lot of ways today. But I don't know, any thoughts there to wrap us up with the last kind of Q&A yeah. question? I don't know. I mean... Yeah, I would, I would, I would imagine that most stock trading right now is already done by AIs. Um, so maybe the question is sort of like, if the AIs get better, like, what does it mean for us? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, the the only sage advice I can give on that is put your money into a index fund and forget about it. Um, if you get anything else, is a gamble, whether it's AI driven uh, or not. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, well, cool. That was uh, really appreciate you being on, Jason. Thank you, everybody that came and participated. We will be putting this out there on the podcast and sending out the recording to everybody that joined. But really appreciate the time, Jason. And everybody have a good rest of your day. Thank you, Matt. Thank you guys for the questions. Yeah. Great Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Built Right. If you enjoy the show, give us a follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to leave us a review. For more info on Built Right, visit us at hatchworksbuiltright.com. Do you already have a Gen AI use case in mind for your business, but don't know where to get started? 
Hatchworks Gen AI Accelerator is exactly what you need. We guide you from ideation to a tangible prototype. Our approach provides a low-risk, high-value pathway for you to validate and test Gen AI technology on a small scale before committing to full production. We take you through technology and LLM selection, perform data preparation, and then build the actual prototype. And then we do testing and model fine-tuning of your prototype. The best part is we get you to this prototype in just two to eight weeks based on the scope of your use case. Check out the link in the show notes or visit hatchworks.com to get started today.